brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello everyone and welcome to Luke Lore, a quick deep dive into a folklore topic where I share some of the stories from around the world that have piqued my interest. Welcome to your spooky season, the best season, podcasting. There's obviously a Halloween special to come, this time as the Samhain spot of the Pagan Wheel of the Year series, but there's even more Halloween shenanigans going on in the media. The movie Halloween Ends just dropped and is an ideal time for some more media tie-in content. Horror movies arguably being modern folklore, and trust me, I will argue extensively on that topic, it's always interesting to take a look at how pop culture is intersecting with our history of storytelling. It's certainly something I've had fun exploring recently with Close Encounters of the Nope kind, as well as the Predator and Prey episodes. Also, technically, our second Witches episode with Lady Mariam Draeger coincided with Hocus Pocus 2, although we kind of did that by accident, missing an opportunity to directly tie in. Anyway, Halloween, the movie series, ahead of Halloween, the holiday date. This is going to be a little different to the usual episode, but hopefully it'll be as fascinating for you as the topic is for me. Let's dig down into something primal, then take a tour around the concept I'm about to expound upon. Why the pursuit is terrifying. The killer of the Halloween franchise occupies a pretty weird space in the pop culture zeitgeist. Known by the killer's name Michael Myers despite having the much cooler moniker The Shape in the credits for the original movie, the concept has been through a lot of iterations in 44 years. Rob Zombie tried to humanise him somewhat, Blumhouse's recent trilogy that culminates in Halloween Ends has been a meta-commentary on the phenomenon of a supernatural stalker killer, there was a period of truly terrible iterative sequels for a while, and a few reboots between here and the noughties. The original, however, was considered the birth of the modern slasher movie. Not strictly speaking the first cinematic slasher killer, however. There's Hitchcock's Psycho, although that was very much off doing its own thing. Radical in a lot of respects, but with this traditional storytelling undercurrent of having a forbidden place that must be ventured into for disaster to then unfold. Which, 
now I think about it, weirdly has a through line with Friday the 13th's Camp Crystal Lake. Italian Gaello movies of the 70s seem to be an obvious inspiration to point to, even with a different stylistic approach. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre was 1974, although that had classic dangerous place dynamic again. It wasn't even a first transgressive invasion of suburbia with the concept. That honour goes to the forgotten for a while yet enjoying a wave of rediscovery, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. A kind of proto-slasher movie that beat Carpenter to the big screen by about two years, with an odd release date of Christmas Eve 1976. The Shape is a bogeyman made on a shoestring, carried by solid concept with a brilliant execution. Boiler Suit. William Shatner mask picked up cheap, painted white, and with the eyes cut out a little larger. Knife. The Shape then stalks hapless victims with a lot of teasing and tension building. If there is a chase, then they just get to follow at a brisk stride that never seems to fall behind, and no attempt to fight back seems to work. The imagination was captured from here, with this now becoming iconic horror movie villain activity. Jason Voorhees is the shape dialed up to 11. Freddy Krueger is very different in the execution, but is a suburban invader who cannot be escaped. Many are the forgotten imitators, and modern iterations from Scream onwards clearly know the rules of the stalker slasher, whether it's to further develop or else subvert the concept. Which is all well and cool and all, but what's with the relentless walking? I have several theories. There's a few simple applications here. There's the abstract, inexorable advance of death, which is solid but a little simplistic. There's a dream logic to it, where no amount of running can save you. Pretty much everyone has had that particular anxiety bomb go off in their subconscious at some point. But I think there's something deeper and more primal to this. Pursuit predation. It's a method of hunting that has direct links to how we are a long-haul biped of a species. Despite how terrible this is for our spines over time and how much cooler our simian evolutionary cousins are swinging about in trees. A lot of nature is set up to chase or be chased. A combination of cunning and conditioning will determine who the winner is in this case, with a lot of predators being explosive hunters who assortedly lurk or creep. Living fossils that evolution decided peaked and left to get on with it pretty much unchanged for millions of years. They drift with a creepy stillness until they get in striking distance and go into a murderous goblin mode. People are a little different. We didn't suddenly go, oh sweet, tools, let's get some agriculture going, then do superhero landings out of the trees on our two feet. We were pursuit predators, and still have some signs of that now even with boomsticks and field to slaughterhouse hamburger production lines. With rocks and with sticks, and even worse our two big very active brains, our ancestors would walk all day after their prey. Relentless, able to keep going and going and going while a prey animal would flee in tiring bursts of activity, burning up all their energy, and the hominids would keep coming. They would work out where their prey went and just keep on coming. Eventually, the prey animal, unable to outsmart the bipedal hunting pack, never able to outrun them for long, would inevitably end up cornered, or else just collapse from exhaustion to await their fate. Then the sticks and rocks would come down for the last time. Humans are, frankly, terrifying when you step back and analyse them as animals, especially as how other animals must see us. This pursuit predation feels like it's baked into us on some level, and I think that's where a lot of the fear of these slasher killer horror movie archetypes come from, Invasive, relentless, inescapable, unbeatable. Instinctually, we would be able to recreate this hunt if we really had to. 
If all the modern technology was wished away and it was back to rocks and sticks, we would know how to not go hungry. I therefore deeply suspect that when it comes to horror stories, we know how to turn that against ourselves in our imagination, and that's why it's so frightening to be the prey on the other side of this. Pursuit predation is our ultimate base reset mode as a hunter, and to apply this as an idea of being hunted, that way has an instinctual terror response that gives these slasher villains a pervasive impact on viewers. Which is kinda cool and relentlessly terrifying. The real-life Michael Myers The golden age of slasher movies was a part of America's serial killer phenomenon, or else the golden age of serial murder. From the 1970s to the turn of the millennium, there was what was supposedly a rise in serial killer activity. Some would argue this is more an increase in the discovery and capture that type of killer, but whatever was going on in reality, within pop culture, there was definitely a fascination with serial killers. They were discussed more, documented more, and pretty much became near-celebrity media figures, something which even continues to this day. Both Alfred Hitchcock and Tobe Hooper were inspired by the disgusting actions of Ed Gein, but Michael Myers in Halloween didn't have a direct serial kill to be based upon. Although that doesn't mean there was no real-life inspiration at play here. John Carpenter has at times discussed the story of a real-life encounter that stuck with him, and heavily inspired his enduring cinematic bogeyman. While studying psychology at Western Kentucky University, there was a field trip to a mental institution, Something that would feel a little icky for a creative writing or filmmaking course, I guess it makes sense here for a social science. Among the people encountered was a committed boy, 12 or 13 years old, and this boy stirred down the young John Carpenter with an evil stir, completely lacking in emotion. Something at once both inhuman and dehumanising that stuck with the future director. In his own words, It was unsettling to me. It was like the creepiest thing I'd ever seen as a stranger. It was completely insane. This has an obvious and direct inspiration to the future Halloween movie. It starts with a young Michael Myers as a child who commits a murder and is committed to a psychiatric institution, then in the performance of The Shape as a remorseless void of emotion that is more a force of nature than a person. The long-term impact of this encounter feels pretty explicit in the script, Carpenter giving his Dr. Loomis the lines, I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face, and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I realised what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. This may be overstated or coming from a place of misunderstanding, but the impact this anonymous boy had on Carpenter was visceral and became something of a viral mimetic idea. This impression of evil, the cinematic bogeyman of Michael Myers as the shape, is something automatically recognisable now. To be a little lighter with the real-life inspiration, let's talk a little about Halloween itself. I'm not sure how important the setting of the movie was for the ongoing pop culture background radiation of the holiday. A weird thing to articulate, but how much did the movie Halloween do to infer what people think about the modern holiday of Halloween? There's some weird high fidelity going on in the creation of the original movie we kind of take for granted now. It's virtually subtext, but Carpenter actually did feel like the Celtic traditions of Samhain were important here. He liked the idea that there was a time of year evil could walk among what should usually be the safe places of civilization and also the idea that evil was a force you couldn't actually defeat or kill. All additional layers to the final story we now all know, this isn't some after-the-fact mythologizing either. This movie wasn't filmed at Halloween for some easy production value. It was shot in summer, and the shoestring budget Carpenter had to work with needed stretching to decorate the suburban setting. 
up to and including ordering in a very small number of white gauze they then painted orange for their jack-o'-lanterns. If I remember right it was a tragically small number of them too, we're talking counting on one hand the amount they had, making the scene where they smash one a her-raising risk for the production. So, in summary, there was a real-life inspiration for the shape, which is terrifying, but a sincere commitment to Samhain and Halloween, which is awesome, making the titular holiday for the franchise more than a cheap gimmick. And now for some folklore. I was going to make this more of a true crime episode, but then I researched it and got sad. Halloween should be fun, so for my one friend who was looking forward to more real life stuff, I'm sorry. Hopefully the real life anxiety behind the movie slasher killers and the evil eyes of an unnerving child will carry you over. For everyone else, not least of all me, let's have some mostly harmless yokai. I say mostly, there's still yokai, but there's two on theme. Actually, there's at least three on theme, but I already did the same yokai twice by accident. Head back to the Yokai Agogo episode for the Okuri Inu, or Sending Off Dog. These two which follow are new to the show, and at least one is kind of adorably iconic and may already be known to some listeners. First up, Nobai Gari. The Nobai Gari is something of a shapeshifter who appears at sundown, its name roughly localising into English as the Shadow Spectre. They may take the form of a Buddhist monk, the shadow of its chosen victim come to life, or else some misshapen humanoid. It will appear out of nowhere at the right times, that being usually in winter as the sun gets low in the sky, and it'll stick right behind the unfortunate human it has chosen. From here it'll follow along mostly behind, but just vaguely in sight at times, to unnerve the Twilight Wanderer. You can do a couple of things at this point. Ignore the otherworldly stalker, put your head down, and keep going either to safety indoors or just until full nightfall, at which moment the Nobai Gary will fade away into the shadows which had made it in the sunset. Alternatively, you can quickly turn around to catch your stalker by surprise. This will go somewhat similar to the getter moment at the start of Ghostbusters. If you look directly at the Nobai Gary that had only just been tormenting you by creeping along far behind into your sides, it will grow to a massive terrifying size. This giant twisted shadow creature will leap up to a ginormous height and lean over its chosen victim to scare them before vanishing. Now, at this point I would need some clean trousers, but the Nobai Gary for the most part seems to be a trickster. There are some more niche stories than going for the neck of their chosen victim, but that's probably down to a subset of stories where an extra transgression has occurred. File that quite rightly under Never Mess With A Yokai. For the most part, this entity will wander along spooking you, ready to give you a quite literally big jump scare if you fall for what it wants and turn around to confront it. Onto the second Yokai Stalker. This one a fair amount of listeners may have heard of, Beto Beto-san. Sometimes mistranslated as Mr. Sticky, the more accurate meaning is Mr. Footsteps, the Beto Beto being onomatopoeia of traditional wooden clogs. This yokai likes to follow along behind people at night and is completely invisible. The only sign of Beto Beto-san is the footsteps right behind you, in what seems to be pure mischief behaviour. Beto Beto-san does have an iconic visual interpretation thanks to the well-loved mangaka and preserver of yokai stories, Shigeru Mizuki. In his work Gegege no Kitaru, Beto Beto-san looks like the spooky cousin of Pac-Man, a giant round ghost with only a big smiling mouth, and two legs to where the geta wooden clogs the yokai clatters along behind his victim in. The bad news is that Beto Beto-san is everyone's secret stalker. Anyone walking down a mountain trail can pick up this pursuer. The good news is that this yokai is harmless, if still unnerving, 
and they follow simple rules and manners that can be used to shake them if your unseen follower is worrying you. Take the following three steps, and do do all of them. Minding your manners is very important to Yokai, and even if Mr. Footsteps himself is harmless, there's a whole other world to enrage with your poor form. Step 1. Get off the path, completely to one side, leaving the way ahead clear. Step 2. Face the path and politely bow down. Step 3. Say, Beto Beto-san, Osakini Okoshi. You will have just politely said, Mr. Footsteps, please go ahead. If you have observed the ritual correctly, Beto Beto-san will be obliged to politely move on ahead. The footsteps will pass you by and fade away, leaving you unharassed as you go about your business. Unless you run into another yokai. Honestly, at this point I would just not wander about Japanese mountains at night if it can be helped. That's yokai territory, and there are very much not harmless otherworldly stalkers to attract when you're a trespassing mortal. It feels like it's been a little while since I've been experimental with my format. Let me know how something of a more abstract discussion landed. It's not going to be happening a lot, but I do feel like there are plenty of interesting topics out there if I go a little further off the usual folklore pathways at times. We did get a couple of yokai to end the episode on at least, on theme no less. Apologies again for my audio on the second witches episode. I'm beginning to suspect that reading out an actual discovered curse used to hex a real person may not have been my best idea. I'll probably do it again at some point, but it's for the preservation of history. Plus, I'll be more careful with my equipment once I inevitably do fail to learn that particular lesson. Luke Law is a Ghost Story Guys production. If you do want to contact me, there's the show's dedicated email, lukelawgsg at gmail.com, and the general show email, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. Both myself and the main show are really easy to find on Facebook and Twitter if you want to make day-to-day contact, as well as there being very active Instagram accounts that a lot of the community gets involved with. If you do want to support the show directly, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. We do have Luke Law merchandise available at the Ghost Story Guys online store. Feel very free to show off any you get online. Just recently, I've begun to push to promote Luke Law more, and the dedicated Facebook group for the show is now live if you want to come join us over there. As ever though, the absolute best thing anyone can do to support the show is to give it a listen. Share this around if you think you may know someone who may be interested, leave a review if you get the chance to help signal boost me, and most of all, I simply hope you enjoy what I'm doing here. Goodbye for now. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.